second annual virtual Catholic homeschool conference is coming May 19th through the 22nd. Four days full of guidance, encouragement, and inspiration. There will be over a dozen live sessions and over 50 pre-recorded talks, plus the daily rosary, streamed mass and adoration, and a Friday evening family movie night. The conference website is catholichomeschoolconference.com. That's catholichomeschoolconference.com. Registration is free. Thanks for listening to KATH 910 AM, Frisco, Dallas, Fort Worth, and North Texas on the Guadalupe Radio Network, Catholic radio for your soul. Heard also at grnonline.com and on your smartphone. Celebrating 2,000 years of truth, this is the Guadalupe Radio Network, radio for your soul. Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, O oh my Jesus, forgive us of our sins, save us from the fires of hell, and lead all souls to heaven, especially those in most need of thy mercy. Welcome in to the David L. Gray Show, voicing truth and reason on the Guadalupe Radio Network. Uh, you know, some people say that it's rather barbaric to celebrate winning wars. I don't know about that. Because no country has ever been known to celebrate losing a war. So why not celebrate winning a war? Even the French, who have probably lost more wars and battles than any country in the history of the world, they don't even celebrate their losses. And they're entitled to because they've, they've lost a lot, France has. So today, all right, we celebrate Cinco de Mayo. We toast those who are celebrating that day that in 1862, the Battle Pueblo, when the Mexican army gave France and Napoleon III yet another defeat. And we thank the French today, whose defeat that day was so bad that people in the United States today <laughs> celebrates another country's victory over them. That's embarrassing. Thank you, France, for not only the French fries, but also Lady Liberty but also for teaching us that no matter how many battles you lose, just keep fighting. What's important is how we can apply that to the spiritual life. In a moment, I'm gonna talk very briefly about the whole thing about Senator Tim Scott, and then I'm gonna talk about the role of contemplation in Dominican spirituality. After the break, at about 20 minutes past the hour, Matthew Hoffman, who translated the book Sacred Betrayals from Spanish to English, he'll be in the studio to talk about that book in which a former widow of uh, the widow of a former Vatican ambassador reveals a troubling web of financial and moral corruption that she discovered after her family's life savings uh, disappeared in a bogus investment scheme that she says Pope Francis himself is covering up. Very fascinating stuff. If you want to opine, you're always free to call in at 877-757-9424. Again, that's 877-757-9424.
If you call in, you get to hear from Cecil, the producer of the show on Guadalupe Radio Network. Also, you get to hear her on Back to the Father, which airs at 2 p.m. on Fridays on Facebook and Twitter. Um, the Catholic Morning Show, the Catholic Drive Time Show on Guadalupe Radio Network is the best show in Catholic radio in the mornings. Make sure you tune to that every morning during the week. Tune in to Face the Father on Friday, on Thursdays with Father Hezekiah. He's talking about Eastern spirituality, um, Eastern liturgy. So um, great show there. Intersections also on Fridays. I think it comes on right after drive time Friday mornings. Intersections with Bree Dow. So, yeah, last week, Senator Tim Scott, he was on the networks. He was responding to President Joe Biden's speech that Joe Biden gave before a joint session of Congress. And the response to Senator Tim Scott saying that America is not a racist country itself was over the top and racist. What's amazing to me is that in this country, that if a black person is a Republican or a conservative, you are allowed to call them every name in the book and talk about them like a dog. You could be racist against a black person if they are Republican or conservative without any penalty or any, um, nothing happens to you. It's just, it's just free fodder to just say whatever you want. But only if the black person is Republican or conservative can a white person use every racist epithet against them. And like I said, there's no consequence whatsoever. Even Gary O'Connor, the chair of the Lamar County Democratic Party in Texas, who's um, called Senator Tim Scott an Oreo, which means he's only black on the outside, white on the inside. It's kind of like calling a black person a coconut. He had called Tim Scott that an Oreo. And again, he's just allowed to keep his seat. And it's not just black Republicans and conservatives, I don't think. I mean, we just have a different set of rules, I think, for Democrats in this country. They're just allowed to do anything or say anything they want. Maxine Waters can incite riots and violence, but President Trump can tell people to protest peacefully and go home. But Trump is the one who Maxine Waters impeaches. Something just seems to be completely broken in this country. And the people in power, they kept telling us for four years that it was President Trump. He's the problem. But clearly, it was another dark soul this whole time. So I think the country just has a sickness that we really need to pay attention to and not brush off anymore. It really is. But let's turn to something I think can help, and it's Dominican spirituality. So when it comes to Dominican spirituality, uh, a great deal of focus is oftentimes paid attention to the Dominican love of truth and the pursuit of truth. And, and one of the Dominican models is Veritas, which is Latin for truth. But today, let's consider what I believe the greatest of the Dominican models, which is Contemplare et Contemplata alles Tardare, which translates to, to contemplate and to hand on to others the fruits of contemplation. At another time, we will consider another common model, which is to praise, to bless, and to preach. But let's begin with contemplation, because that is where St. Dominic de Guzman began his journey as a canon regular at Osama. Um, and he's also referred to St. Dominic of um, Osma, which was a town near um, the, the town in which he was born in 
Caluega, Spain. And, and here, Jordan of Saxony writes that day and night, Dominic frequented the church, giving himself without interruption to prayer, redeeming the time by contemplation. He says that Dominic scarcely left the walls of the monastery. This is when he was a canon. And from there, Dominic left and went to southern France where he began his apostolic activity, but never stopped um, his contemplative life. He never stopped that practice. He never ceased being a contemplative. And Father Heimbush notes in his classic work, Dominican Spirituality Principles and Practices, which you should get. I recommend definitely if you're interested in spiritual um, Dominican spirituality, that's Dominican Spirituality Principles and Practices by Father Heimbush. He writes that when, when St. Dominic founded the Order of Preachers, the only thing that people knew at that time were two types of religious orders. You had your contemplatives and you had your actives. Your contemplatives were religious orders such as your Benedictines, your Cistercians, your Carthusians, um, who, had, who led a life of prayer, who never left the cloister or the monastery. They were just contemplatives. That's all they did. And then you had your active orders, such as your Nice Templars and your Nice St. John's, your Tectonic Knights, your Orders of the Ransom. These religious orders, their responsibility primarily was to protect pilgrims and to minister to the sick. And they had hospitals and things like that. The only people who, who came close to having uh, being contemplative and active were some of your, your canons, but their, their, their ministry in the world was very limited. But what St. Dominic founded was something new a new kind of religious order that would pursue an intense life of prayer, but also out of that fervor for contemplation would it, um, they would, their soul would be ignited to be in a zealous apostle. In fact, the only way these two lives were able to blend St. Dominic taught was to begin with contemplation is through contemplation through a contemplative life, which was the first principle that, could lead to an active life. And St. Dominic was, I think, really the, the perfect example how these two things came together. Jordan Saxony again. He says that Dominic shared the daytime with his neighbor, but nights he dedicated to God. He says he spent so much so much of his night in prayer that he hardly needed a bed. And perhaps this is why many of the friars said St. Dominic didn't even have a bed of his own. He slept in chairs, he slept on the floor, he slept leaning against the altar, he dozed at a table. But at night, um, he would pray as long as his body endured it. So St. Dominic is really the highest standard that we have, aside from Christ Jesus, on, on how prayer unites with the act of life and how it enables it. But what is contemplation? Well, I define contemplation itself as really just the intentional action by which we orient our total being to God, an intentional action by which we orient our total being to God. To contemplate is to devote all of our mind, all of our body and all of our soul to prayer. And me saying that, I hope that sounds natural because it should sound natural as for, for Catholics because we have a liturgy that teaches us every day and every Sunday how to do that very thing, how to contemplate, how to offer a complete mind and body and soul to God, giving all of ourselves, giving all of who we are back to God as an offering. 
immersing our full selves into him who authored us and who saves us. For the Protestant, um, contemplation may sound strange. Um, and if, if a Protestant right now is hearing me suggest that to contemplate is the highest good rather than to praise, that, that does sound strange because for many Protestants to, to praise, to offer joys, praise to God is the first principle. For the traditional Muslim or Jew, the idea of fully immersing um, self into prayer does sound natural. But that contemplation should lead to apostolic work leading to people to Christ, again, sounds strange, does not sound natural at all. But for a Catholic whose life is being shaped by the liturgy to make all, I think this makes all the sense in the world because in the rhythm of the mass, in the rhythm of the liturgy calling us to pray and to contemplate through the actions of standing and kneeling and sitting, and to pray and to contemplate through prayer and confession and acclamation and song, the liturgy of the mass is teaching us Dominican spirituality, that the perfect blending of contemplation and action. In fact, it is only after we have fully contemplated the mystery of the mass that, and have offered all of ourselves to him who in return offers himself to us, that then our father orders us into the world. He orders us to go be active in the world. After we contemplate the liturgy, we're then ordered to go be active in the world. Go, you're dismissed. Etta missa es. For now, we're able to be, for now, we're able to be active. And now we're able to be dismissed into the world. Just as St. Dominic was active in Osma, um, and then became active. He went into the world, went to France because he had contemplated first. So therefore we contemplate to the point where we have been united with God, which is the goal of contemplation. And that is the goal of the liturgy to divinize us. Similarly, Father Heimbush writes, contemplation is the chief purpose for the order of preachers. Therefore, Dominican spirituality is the mirror of the liturgy. But Heimbush notes that the Dominican does not contemplate because he wants to become an apostle, because that would make contemplation a means to an end. Rather, he writes, contemplation is so superior that it cannot be subordinated to anything else or anything lesser. As I said last week about our role in the ecology, if we want to be a good steward of the environment, it begins by being a good Christian. And all things will then flow from that. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. So this is why we contemplate. This is why we, we must be a contemplative people first. And from that will follow the praise and the truth. It would be easy, I think, to blame the modern desert of contemplation on Vatican II. And is the emphasis of the importance of the contemplative life and the contemplative religious orders in the Catholic Church um, in favor of focusing on something we've called a, a pastoral theology and, and social action. And if we look at the vast majority of our, our parishes today and all their social justice warring, all this work about encountering and accompanying people on their journey, many of us would admit that it, it all seems just unnatural. We recognize the intention and the effort, but it seems to be so dis, um, dis, disjointed from our highest prayer in the light of the liturgy 
of the mass that we cannot confess that these two things are always the same or that one truly flows from the other. Certainly, we can see a connection between the liturgy and feeding the hungry, for that happens in both places. There's feeding in the liturgy and in, in our call to feed the hungry. We can see the connection between the liturgy and visiting the prison and administering to the sick, because that's what happens in the liturgy. Christ visits those who are um, slaves or imprisoned to sin, and, and those who are sick, he comes to heal them. He comes to free them. Both of those things happen in the liturgy. But when we see other social justice warring, such as marching for uh, for a grave sin pride or parades um, doing that or, or proclaiming that uh, the life of just one particular people matters, just to name a couple, right? Let, certainly, let's blame Vatican II for this whole thing <laughs> in a new liturgy. But also let's admit that there must have been a loss of the idea that we move from contemplation to action or else it wouldn't sound like an acceptable idea when people came around and said, remove the altar rails or start wearing shorts and sandals to mass. To the contrary, long before Vatican II, too many of the faithful became too busy to contemplate, too busy for the first necessary thing. And the lack of understanding about the meaning and mystery of the liturgy was just too present, too prevalent. The mystery had become too common, even with the bells and the smells. Also, what it meant to be a contemplative seemed to be too hard at times because the popular standards of contemplation, such as the great Dominicans like St. Catherine of Siena and her mystical experiences and St. Thomas Aquinas and his contemplative life leading him to write some of the greatest writings in our tradition. But it was Aquinas who noted that only those who are busy with the active life find themselves weary with the contemplative life. He wrote, there are some who are deprived of freedom for divine contemplation and immersed in secular affairs willingly or with regret. In these persons, very little or no charity is evident. St. Thomas Aquinas was correct. Evidence of lack of charity, lack of love, and I was also at a lack of clarity in speech and action is evidence of there being a desert of contemplation in their life. Being free from contemplation is to become slaves to the secular affairs. Again, the Dominican idea is not that one should be a contemplative only, but that having contemplation as our first priority opens up the door to the grace that infects other aspects of our life. Again, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things that flow from that intention, intentional attention to God will be given. To be devoted to St. Dominic, I would say, as and his model for spirituality does not require one to take vows to be uh, uh, order to be a priest or friar in order of preachers or in the first, second or third orders. If you're called to that, you must. But if you're not called to that, you mustn't. But. You should discern that call. Nevertheless, St. Dominic is a saint for all of us, and his spirituality is a gift to all. And if you can devote your day to speaking only of God and only to God, about God, and then, you're, and then in your day to praying to God until you fall asleep, you have done well in imitating St. Dominic. But to have contemplation as your first priority is easy for us Catholics because we have the liturgy. And if we focus 
all of our attention on his mystery, meaning we have contemplated very well. In outside liturgy, let's remember that contemplation is like a well, um, that a water that never runs dry. And, and the instrument that you bring to the well to gather the water is not always the same size. What you bring today may not be what you bring tomorrow. Today you bring a spoon, tomorrow you may have a bucket. Your capacity will grow the more often you come back to the well. You may lose focus easily, you may lack interest, but you keep coming back to the well and your capacity grows. What I recommend, like I said, is that you keep coming to the well, no matter what. As often as you think about it, keep coming, your capacity will begin to match your, your God-given ability. And you'll move from having a spoon to having a bucket. And as you begin to see how your life and words and actions are being affected by your growth and contemplation, you'll become even more excited to return to that well. So how does contemplation look in the life of a layperson? I'll wrap this up. Well, contemplation looks, um, how does it look in the life of a layperson? Well, I like to teach that contemplation has three essential parts. Those parts are intention, action, and effort. And I wish IAE could be a, a pronounceable word, but it's not. And no masculine man should ever form his mouth to even try to utter such a strange arrangement of letters. But the first part, intention, is your resolve to enter into orienting your full self to God. Intention is greater than wants, is greater than desire, is greater than hope. Intention is your resolve. It's what you will do, not what you should do or what you shall do. I intend to contemplate God. The second step is action. Action is the work that you will perform in contemplation. The action could be the liturgy, it could be Eucharistic devotion, adoration, it, it could be silent prayer, it could be reading the scriptures, it could be running, it could be mowing the lawn. Whatever that action is that you will do that will guide you into devoting your whole being to God, your mind, body, and soul, that's your action. Is your effort there? The last step. You can have a great intention, you can have an action, but... Have you lost focus? How's your effort going at this moment? Intention, action, effort is how you contemplate. I-A-E, again, please don't pronounce it. <laughs> it's a weird word to try to pronounce. You're, you ruin the whole thing. But that's how you contemplate. Intention, action, effort. That's what it means to be a Dominican. Contemplate first, and then truth and praise will follow. So, that's all I know about that. Right after the break, we'll be having Matthew Hoffman in the studio to talk about a new book he has translated called Sacred Betrayals. A weirdo raises her voice against the corruption of the Francis Papacy. Fascinating stuff. Let's see how this story um, has meats or is it just gossip? Let's find out. We'll find out right after the break. Voicing truth and reason. Guadalupe Free Radio.
Instead of fighting the crowds, isn't it so much easier to hop online and do your shopping in the comfort of your own home? Did you know that you can help the Guadalupe Radio Network when you shop online? All you need to do is shop on Amazon Smile and 0.5% of your purchase goes to the GRN. Just go to AmazonSmile.com and select La Promesa Foundation as your nonprofit of choice. La Promesa is the parent company of Guadalupe Radio. It's that simple to give a little extra help to the Guadalupe Radio Network. 13, 12, uh, 11, What are you doing, Cecil? Nine. Oh, are you counting down the seconds until our Summer Speaker Series four, tickets with Father three, John Ricardo two, go on sale? One. I gotta go get my tickets. Bye. Uh, I guess I'll do the rest of the spot alone then. The tickets for our 13th annual Summer Speaker Series are on sale now. Join us for an evening of food fellowship and a presentation by Father John Ricardo, all in support of Catholic Radio. The event is happening Thursday, August 5th, beginning at 6 p.m. in the Grand Ballroom of the Irving Convention Center. Tickets and discounted hotel rates can be found at grnonline.com. This is Len Oswald, president of the Guadalupe Radio Network. Besides Mother Angelica, who else has been the most influential in the formation of the GRN? The answer is easy, Pope St. John Paul II. When he came to America in 1998, he said that sharing about the new evangelization would, quote, depend in a decisive way on the lay faithful, being fully aware of their baptismal vocation and their responsibility for bringing the good news of Jesus Christ to their culture and society, unquote. His words caught our attention, causing us to ask ourselves, how could we further keep our four promises to the Blessed Mother? He inspired us to go deeper with our evangelization efforts. Within two years of hearing his words, we put our first Catholic radio station on the air. Today, we continue to be inspired by his words as we grow the network which now reaches over 20 million souls every day. This has been your GRN Family Minute. We are your Catholic radio, radio for your soul. Matthew Hoffman is an essayist, journalist, and author whose articles have appeared in numerous publications worldwide, both secular and Catholic, including Wall Street Journal, London Sunday Times, Detroit News, New York Daily News, LifeSite News, Catholic World Report, Crisis Magazine, and National Catholic Register. He is the translator and author of the book um, Gomorrah and St. Peter Damien's Struggle Against Ecclesiastical Corruption in 2015. He holds an MA in philosophy from Holy Apostles College and Seminary, where he is certified for academic competency in five foreign languages. He resides in Mexico and does specialized coverage in Latin America and for a variety of publications. Welcome on to Voicing Truth and Reason, Matthew. Thank you. Uh, I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, I'm happy to have you here. I'm really excited to talk about about your book. So you, you, you translated um, this book from English, from Spanish to English, Sacred Betrayals. Um, uh, subtitled A Widow Raises Her Voice Against the Corruption of the Papacy. The foreword was written by um, Car- um, Archbishop um, Carlo Maria, Maria uh, Vigano, which, you know, is known throughout the world, right? He's, he's very famous um, for pushing back against uh, a lot of modernism in the Catholic Church. So this book is originally published in Spanish, and, and now in 2021, now it's been reprinted here in, in English. Um, if the uh, by the imprint of LifeSite News, Faithful Inside Books. Uh, so give us give us a skinny here. Give us a dra- backdrop for this book. What is this book about, and why was it written? Well, the, this book uh, was many years in the making, and um, it was written by 
the widow of the former dean of the ambassador corps of the Vatican, Alejandro Valladares. Um, he, he served as, he was the longest serving ambassador to the Vatican um, of all the ambassadors, so he was the, the dean of the, the diplomatic corps. Um, is my audio coming through? All right? Yes. Okay, good. Yes. Uh, and so uh, she, she knew uh, Pope Francis's most important cardinal extremely well, she and her husband. Uh, they, they, he can, the, this cardinal, who is Cardinal uh, Rodriguez Moradiaga, okay, who is called the Vice Pope in the Italian media because he is so powerful, uh, Oscar Andres Rodriguez Moradiaga. Um, he uh, was a guest in their home for many years. They helped uh, Alejandro Valladares uh, lobbied for him to become a cardinal. Uh, and so this is how intimate the family was uh, with the cardinal. The cardinal also kept them in office for a long time, kept re recommending that they be renewed as ambassadors to the Holy See for Honduras. Um, that's why the testimony of this, uh, of this woman, Martha Alegria, uh, Alegria Reichman, is so powerful. Her husband is now dead, um, and uh, she has written this book uh, discussing the corruption of Cardinal Moradiaga um, which was horrific in Honduras and still is, and the fact that Pope Francis has been covering up for his, his corruption uh, for many years. And, uh, and this corruption includes, by the way, um, essentially swindling the couple out of their own money, involving them at least in a swindle that resulted in losing all of their life savings. Um, and uh, this is a story that really needs to be told. It goes way beyond this personal swindle, though, that occurred with them. Uh, uh, Cardinal Moradiaga has reportedly lost millions of dollars in the diocese to this swindle and in an embezzlement, uh, the embezzlement of, of his vice, uh, I mean, sorry, of his uh, auxiliary bishop, um, who's now resigned and just sort of fled from Honduras and has disappeared with no accountability from the Vatican. He also embezzled about a million dollars, apparently, or at least there's evidence to that effect, very good evidence to that effect and also was involved in uh, homosexual predation of seminarians, apparently was accused of it anyway, very strongly. There was a massive Vatican investigation. The Pope learned all about this and has covered it up repeatedly, has refused to believe any of the information that came to him. And all this is because Moradiaga was key to his election as Pope, and, apparently anyway, and that's why there's such a strong bond between the Pope and this extremely corrupt man. Um, and it ultimately resulted in this widow losing her life savings. Um, she, she really had very little left to, to live off over the rest of her life, just what was left from a couple of houses that a couple owned, but it's going to be very difficult for her. And so she's written an entire book uncovering so much of this, revealing so much of what she knows personally from decades of knowledge about Muradiaga from knowing him personally and knowing his auxiliary bishop also, Pineda Fasquel, uh, who's now, again, disappeared, just resigned and sort of disappeared with no accountability from Honduras. And the reason that we decided to publish this book um, uh, is that, it, it, first of all, it's very little known outside of Honduras. Um, we wanted to bring it to an English-speaking audience, but we think that this corruption at such a high level in the Holy See, involving yet another cover-up by Pope Francis, has been involved in a number of very serious cover-ups of, of abuse and scandal. Um, is, is, is a really important example of how seriously corrupt the, the Holy See is right now, the, the Vatican, and, and how we need to 
We really need to insist that it be cleaned up and that there be accountability for our prelates, including Pope Francis, including the Pope. So we're talking with Mr. Matthew Hoffman. He's an essay and journalist, and he's recently translated this book called Sacred Betrayals. A widow raises her voice against corruption in the papacy. Um, is being imprinted is being uh, reprinted here in English by life's uh, print by imprint by LifeSite News Faithful Insight Books. You can buy it, buy it online, Amazon Books. Uh, fascinating stuff um, that's that you're you're saying here, Matthew. Um, and if you want to call in, opine, ask Matthew a question about this book, um, you can call in at eight seven 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 five seven nine four two four. Again, that's eight seven seven. Seven five seven nine four two four. If you put put a comment on one of our social media streams on Facebook or YouTube, uh, myself or the producer Cecil, we're trying to take a look at it, see see what you're asking. Um, Matthew, this story, and you're, you're saying, is this story just well known in Honduras? Just it's just a something that everybody just knows there. Well, it's interesting because, in a certain sense, yes. The the people who are sort of in the know in Honduras. Um, people who tend to read and, uh, and, and follow these matters in, in, in the media to some extent, uh, because, the, yes, the major media, some of it has covered it. Um, and those who cover it, who follow it on the Internet, will know what's going on. But many of, the, many of the common people in Honduras don't know about this particular scandal, but they're very well aware that Maradiaga is very corrupt. Uh, and, in fact, they, they protest him. It's really dif difficult for him to go out in public because he's going to be uh, – Sort of, uh, sort of attacked on the street, so to speak. I mean, he, uh, there was one case where he had to flee from a mob of people at the airport when he came back to Honduras. Um, and so, yes, he is seen as very corrupt and very much in bed with an extremely corrupt establishment in Honduras. So uh, this all relates to that uh, as well. I mean, there's, there's been, uh, for example, uh, the, the money that, that Pineda Pascual, uh, who, his, his auxiliary bishop, who... Uh, who was well known to be involved in numerous homosexual affairs. In fact, actually, amazingly, he had his homosexual lover in what's called Via Iris, which is the, the archbishop's residence that where Pineda Pascal lived. Well, this man he brought in as his male, apparently his boyfriend, uh, his name was uh, Eric Cravioto Farjado, a man dressed as a priest who was not a priest. This was well known. This was well known. In fact, actually, uh, uh, it, it was reported in the media, even in Honduras, the accusations that were made. And uh, Maradiaga managed to silence the one priest who really tried to sound the alarm, and he left the priesthood. Um, that, that account is in the book as well. That's something that's public and is still on the Internet. There's still discussion of it. So, yes, in Honduras this is known. Internationally, it became somewhat known a couple of years ago when Martha Alegria uh, made her accusations public in the Italian media. But the details about them and her evidence, um, that really was not made known really until now in this book. This book goes into a great deal of detail about these matters and what she knows about them. Yeah, and so the the former ambassador, her husband, <clears throat> is deceased now. Obviously, he would know a whole lot about this story. Um, so how can we, how do we, by what means or what evidence do we have to trust the testimony of his of his beloved wife um well um she she was considered a very trustworthy per person i mean she was very well known in the vatican in fact uh so well known and so uh much of a trust trustworthy figure that when she made these accusations originally against 
Maradiaga and Pinedo Sasquel, um, she went uh, first to Cardinals and spoke to them personally because obviously she knew personally people like um, Pietro Parolin, obviously an uh, extremely important cardinal in the Vatican, uh, Cardinal Marco mm -hmm. Ouellette, and then finally to Pope Francis himself. She had an audience with him about this. She told him directly, and she recounts it in the book. Um, and uh, so uh, it's, it's not as if that this isn't a very well-known figure. In fact, the Vatican actually published one of her books uh, years ago. I believe it was in the early 2000s uh, that one of her books was published by, by the Holy See itself. Um, so she's a very well-known figure, um, and uh, there's no question that she's highly credible. But, but again, much of what she's saying was already discussed in the Honduran media itself, as I mentioned. Uh, even Alberto Coutier, um, if that's how you pronounce his name, um, he, he was a, a priest um, uh, who probably you recall was uh, left the priesthood, sadly. Um, uh, he had a television show that was very popular in Spanish, and then he went off with some woman and left the priesthood. But he actually reports in his book um, the same stories about Villa Iris uh, and uh, this, um, this auxiliary bishop having his, his boyfriend in Villa Iris. And this priest, whose, now, whose last name was uh, De Jesus Mora, who reported this and was pushed out of the priesthood as a result, threatened by the attorneys and pushed out of the priesthood. In, in Honduras, it's very easy for a cardinal, a very powerful cardinal like um, uh, Rodriguez Moradiaga to get away with something like this. Um, but what he, uh, because again, there's a big media establishment. Uh, most of the media simply is in lockstep with the government. Uh, they're paid off by the government. That's how it works in Mexico. I live in Mexico, by the way. The government simply pays the media to, to control them. They, they pay for massive advertising in Mexico, and that controls the flow of information in Mexico. The major media will only report what the government is willing to let them report, essentially, because they economically depend on the government for their advertising. It works the same way in Honduras, and they're all in bed together, this oligarchy that runs Honduras. But what I'm hoping, and what Martha is hoping, is that once this gets out into English, it won't be so easy for them to continue to cover this stuff up. Hmm. And sadly, we have every reason to believe that Pope Francis would do this, uh, would, would cover these things up, because he's done so repeatedly in the past. In Chile, in his own diocese, in Buenos Aires, there's much testimony from people who wrote him letters about sex abuse, and he wouldn't uh, even respond to them. It's a really heartless behavior. I don't like to have to report this about the Pope, but I think that it is really necessary to do so because um, it's going to create scandal before the world. Ultimately, it already has. And if we as laymen don't fight to, to correct the problems in the church, many souls will be lost. And I think many souls have been lost because of the scandal created by Rodriguez Maradiaga. In fact, actually, the, the number of Catholics in Honduras is plummeting. It has been plummeting for the last two decades under Maradiaga's administration. People are disillusioned with the church. They can see that there's so much corruption in the church in Honduras, and so they're going over to evangelical Protestantism in droves, much worse than in other parts of Latin America. It's happening all over Latin America, but it's much worse in Honduras. So, yeah, there are consequences to this, and if we don't shine a light on it and stop it, it's just going to get worse. So we're not, I don't think, you know, as a Catholic, I don't, I don't want to just dredge up scandal about a prelate in the church. I don't think that's the proper spirit of our faith. Um, there are always private sins, but this isn't really a private sin. It's millions of dollars that's disappeared of diocesan money. Um, it's it's a homosexual predation against seminarians that the uh, Archbishop, uh, I'm sorry, the Auxiliary Bishop Pineda Pascual uh, uh, um, was, um, Pineda Pascual, sorry, was accused of. 
Um, and it was heavily investigated by the Vatican, and then nothing was done. He was allowed to resign and just leave. So you can imagine the souls that have been lost. Um, the seminary was accused of being full of homosexuals, and uh, that was uh, well-reported also in the international media. But again, covered up, ignored, and not dealt with. And so we're speaking with Mr. Matthew Hoffman. He's essayist and journalist. He's recently translated this book from Spanish to English called Sacred Betrayals. A widow raises her voice against the corruption of the papacy. And we're talking about that in some of the alarming and, and shocking things that were have been written in this book and seems to be fully supported with um, investigative work done in the secular media. And also uh, eyewitness testimony um, by the victim herself in this in this um, scandal that cost her 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 life savings. And the book is being printed by Faithful Insight Books, which is an imprint of LifeSite News. You can buy the book online. Um, Amazon is a place where um, you can also read a couple sample chapters of the book. Again, that's Sacred Betrayals. The widow raises her voice against the corruption of the papacy. And Matthew, you were talking about that. Um, it was a entire retreat center um, at the university, which was turned over to Fasquale for personal use. And it says it appears about being used for for a place for sexual activity of, of male students. Yeah, that was just only one rendezvous location between him and uh, male students uh, there at the university. Um, seminarians, I believe at least two accused him of um, sexual predation. That's sort of trying trying to prey on them using his authority. Um, I personally talked to a priest, I cannot reveal his name, but he's a Honduran priest who personally saw Pineda Fasquel engaged in sexual activity uh, with a seminarian, uh, reported it to Maradiaga personally, and Maradiaga just refused to believe it. Um, but, but then again, this, none of this should be surprising because, again, it was well known in Honduras that um, <laughs> this, this archbishop, I'm sorry, this auxiliary bishop's boyfriend was living in Via Iris in the archbishop's residence where the archbishop himself was living and Pineda uh, Pasquale, the auxiliary bishop, was living. And that went on for years until finally there was some kind of uh, fight between them. And this man, Eric Cravioto, uh, had to leave. He just basically left. But the arch, but, but Pineda Pasquale used this massive amount of money, over a million dollars that was given to the archdiocese of uh, Tegucigalpa, for the purpose of helping the poor. It was given for charitable work. It was supposed to be distributed to local parishes for charitable works. Um, there's never been any accounting of the money. Um, it was delivered to Pineda Fasquel. He never accounted for any of it, but he has been accused very generally of having taken all these trips to Spain to visit boyfriends there, to live this sort of jet-setting lifestyle. The money just disappeared. He's never been held accountable for it. And that's in addition to $1.2 million that disappeared of other money donated to the diocese that Moradiaga had control over and personally handed over to this, um, this supposedly this great investment scheme that he had supposedly investigated. It was totally safe. The money just disappears. This man named Yusri Henian, who is a swindler, uh, um, who's been accused of being a swindler more than one time, just disappears with the money. Nobody knows where he is. And of course, the whole thing is suspicious. Um, this family lost their money in the, in the process. And Maradiaga supposedly lost the million dollars. But did he really? Is he really that foolish that he would hand this money over to some um, uh, swindler from, from, I think, uh, from some uh, uh, country in the Middle East uh, who's going around claiming he's going to give these high rates of interest? 
Or was there some kind of possible deal between them? And that's just speculation, but it's very odd. I mean, Muradiaga is not a dumb man. He's a very highly educated, very intelligent man. Mm. So there's so much to investigate here, and much of it was investigated by the Holy See. The evidence was turned over with dozens and dozens of witnesses going to the, ap the, uh, the apostolic nunciatura, uh, right? Uh, they went there to give their testimony, and in the end, nothing was done. Uh, essentially, Pineda Pasquale just resigned on his own account, uh, just resigned, and then went off somewhere, and there was, we don't know of any punishment, any accountability, any reckoning, nothing. It's total impunity for the most powerful cardinal in the Vatican, uh, and it's, this is the kind of thing that just has to come to an end. The, the evangelical mission yeah. of the church is just deeply harmed by this sort of thing. And there's a lot of troubling things here. I mean, the fact that that we have a coroner here, Martiega, who is apparently seems to be some sort of financial advisor as well. That that's that's a that's a, a weird thing in itself. But Martha and her husband, they do voluntarily give their money to this person who's recommended to them. Um, that that's a, a free choice. Um, yeah. But the cardinal he finds out that there's been some sort of swindling here. And the recourse is that at some point in time, he does want to offer Martha some money to, is it to be quiet or is it to, is it to make reparations or why, why does he offer her um, money? Well, I think that he knew, first of all, that the whole thing was very dangerous to him, that, um, that they had lost this money for, it was very difficult for, for her even to meet and talk to this man who, by the way, they had been so closely intimate friends of the family with him. I mean, the Martha, her, her husband, the ambassador, their two daughters. Um, they have all these family photos. I have them myself. I mean, Martha sent them to me. Um, and, and so, uh, um, you know, she knew him so very closely and could always go and talk to him. But when she wanted to talk to him about this, he didn't even want to talk to her. Finally, after about a, about a month of trying to obtain a meeting with him, he, he tells her, uh, oh, yes, it's terrible. Uh, uh, Actually, he seems at first to, to want to uh, just almost uh, be kind of blasé about the whole thing, but then says, um, I, I, I'll, I'll give you something to help you out. And this money was given to her so that really she could actually try to hire attorneys. That's what she did with it, to hire attorneys to try to get the money back. And she thought that he was going to help her to do it because he'd been ripped off as well, supposedly. And um, then he, he would never see her again. She uh, actually had to go and find him and search him down to even talk to him. She, he instructed her to lie about it, said that it couldn't be known that this had happened to him because he was in the Council of Cardinal Advisors. He is the coordinator of the Council of Cardinal Advisors, the most important cardinal in the Vatican. And yes, he did give her a, a little more than 10% of the, of the money she lost, but she spent it on attorneys. And then when the, she tried to get cooperation from him with the attorneys to try to get the information to sue Yusri Henian or get the money back, he would not help, would not do anything. So, and he, he won't talk to her. He was really simply stopped talking to her, would, acted like she was just an annoyance, and that was that. And I guess he was hoping that she would just stay quiet, but she didn't. She decided that she would not stay quiet, even though I have to say the people very close to her tried to get her to stay quiet. Nobody wanted her to speak out, but she, she said she was not going to just be quiet while somebody did this to her family and engaged in such corruption. By the way, she also believes that one of the reasons he turned on her is that she complained to him repeatedly about the bad behavior of his auxiliary bishop, which is becoming better and better known. Not only did she do it, but 
the Cardinal's own sister would, would try to tell him about it. And once when people started to complain about Pineda Fasquel, he would turn on them and actually, even in some cases, attack them. In this case, he just sort of blocked her out of his life. And she gives the whole story uh, uh, how, about how that happened, um, the course of events in which that happened, the corruption in which uh, Pineda Fasquel was involved. He actually uh, stole documents from her husband and herself that she had lent to him, historic documents, and he wouldn't give them back. And so she even initiated a suit in Rome over that. It just goes on and on. It's it a, an incredible mess. She was never going to speak about this, but finally she felt compelled when it seemed clear that they were just stonewalling her in the Vatican and stonewalled everyone who tried to tell them about it. Wow, this is this is just fascinating. And as you mentioned a couple of times, um, the Holy Father's role, Pope Francis, in this whole thing. Um, and as you mentioned before, there have been other times that he's seemed to have close friends who he's who he's given the benefit of the doubt or covered up for or would rather uh, been slow to uh, do the right thing when it came to people he, he was close with. And this seems to be another case. Why, why does it seem as though the, the Pope is loyal to his friends rather than being loyal to the truth or following the evidence? That's a good question. I think that, I think personally, my, I mean, I can't get inside of his soul and tell you, but um, based on my understanding, I've covered him for years. I've covered many of his scandals um, and uh, read a decent bit about his life. I think that, um, I think that at some point, uh, um, Jorge Bergoglio uh, seems to have, in some real sense, lost his faith. I hate to say that or at least have reconceived, re-imaged what Christianity actually is for him, what the Catholic faith actually is. Maybe that's another way of putting the same thing, because you can't really change the Catholic faith. For him, it's much more about, um, I think, it, it's almost like a political ideology. And he sees himself as a politician. He always was very adept at manipulating the media, even in, when he was in Buenos Aires. Um, and I think that he just sees the church as having fundamentally a secular mission uh, of promoting an agenda that more or less is, is consonant with modern sort of woke socialist thinking. I hate to say that, but I can't, I can't see it any other way after studying his life. And he, it's very much in the mold of the very famous um, president of Argentina, uh, Juan Perón, right? Um, Heronism in Argentina is a very powerful influence, and Perón was sort of all things to all people, sort of a politician promising everything to everybody, and trying to get his way through political manipulation, alliances with people, and uh, I, I think it may have been Perón or another Latin American uh, dictator who said, for my, uh, for my friends, everything. For my enemies, the law. Um, and I really think that's how he functions. If you're a friend of his, if he sees you as an ally, he will be loyal to you. I hate to say it, but I think Donald Trump behaved in a similar way. No, not to get into American politics too much, and I, I am somebody, by the way, I, I actually voted for Trump hesitantly. But I do think that Trump actually, he is actually in a sort of almost a left-wing version of Trump in that sense. He will defend his enemies no matter what the accusations are against them. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, his friends, but his enemies, he will apply the law in the most rigorous, merciless way that he he possibly can. It's really very cruel kind of uh, third world politics. I, I, I hate to say that, but I just don't think there's 
any other way to say it or see it. And Henry Sire, who wrote The Dictator Pope, if you really want to understand Pope Francis's mentality, I think that that book captures it better than anybody. I mean, he's really the one, Henry Sire and The Dictator Pope really formulated the, the I think, the most accurate perspective on Francis and, and his papacy. So we're speaking with Matthew Hoffman, who's SLA, SAS and journalist living in Mexico. He trans recently translated a book into English from Spanish called Sacred Betrayals. A widow raises her voice against the corruption of the papacy. A lot of information here. Shocking things. Matthew, um, how is Martha doing? Um, sometimes this happens to people um throughout the history of the church two over 2000 years. I mean, we we've had a history of people who identify as Catholic, but are sometimes just some of the worst people who humanity has ever known. Right. And sometimes they're in some of the most powerful positions in the church. And sometimes their actions affect people's faith. They can make a shipwreck of people's faith. St. Paul talked about this. So, I mean, how is Martha doing? Is, is she, still in the church or is she is her faith been made a shipwreck of well that's, that's a very good question I, I will say that i'm really inspired by her in many ways martha is somebody who will not let go of her faith um she she was awakened by all of this this really awakened her to the corruption in the church and particularly the attacks that francis has also made on doctrine so she talks about that in the book that that the undermining of Catholic doctrine that's occurred in this papacy, very grave, and it, it alerted her to all that, but she has not lost her faith at all. Um, and she's always said through this whole process, there, was, there were points we weren't so sure we were going to be able to get this book out. Um, I could say that I have really witnessed, and I've, I've talked to Martha for many hours, I know her very well, the woman has suffered horrendously. I mean, she really has suffered, and the feeling of being by a high prelate of the church that was such a close member of the family. He used to stay in their home and say, this is my Bethany, this is my home. Uh, you know, uh, he would even say things like, if they ever make me Pope, I, I'll, you, you can come and live in the Vat with the Vatican with me. It was just, this man who was so close to her and such a high prelate in the church and for him to betray her in this cruel way and her family uh, has been very devastating for her, but she has persevered through the whole thing has insisted on speaking about the truth and not go off into the shadows or leave the church. And it's taken courage. It really has taken courage on her part. Um, she's had moments of very great difficulty. I mean, um, uh, she's, you know, uh, I could say, I mean, I don't want to go into too much detail, but there have been times where she's even broken down in tears when I've been talking to her about it. It really, I mean, I can tell you I've witnessed, witnessed the effect it's had on this woman, but at the same time, mm -hmm. her, her strength too, and that she says, I, as she says in her book, she says, um, I am strong in the Lord, and I think she really is strong in the Lord. I don't think that that's bragging. I think that she has a sense that God has given her the strength to get through this and to tell the truth about it. Um, so I am happy to say she is very much ca a Catholic and very much still uh, practicing Catholic. That's, that's really good to hear, because like I said, people, there's bad people in the church, and they do bad things. And But we always have to make the distinction between the church you know, established by Christ Jesus through his apostles and the sacraments and some of the weeds in the church. Um, mm -hmm. Archbishop um, Vigano, um, he wrote the forward to this book. What, what inspired him to write the forward? 
Um, well, uh, I, I, I'd like to respond to that. Can I respond just briefly to what you just said about the corruption that some, you know, the clergy is sometimes corrupt in the church? I just, yeah, every time I do an interview on a topic like this, I always want to say to listeners, because most of the listeners are Catholic, I am a Catholic. I believe that this is God's holy church, the one true church established by Jesus Christ. And I just wanted to, to second what you're saying is that it's, there's a distinction between the clergy and, 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 uh, and what they do privately and personally, or even sometimes publicly, and the church itself. I mean, uh, for example, we would never say that the United States government ceased to be legitimate because Richard M. Nixon committed crimes as president of the United States, right? I mean, who would ever claim something like that, that somehow, you know, this isn't a legitimate government because the man in, at the top is not doing, you know, is not behaving right, the right way. In fact, is maybe even doing things that are actually against the law. That can happen, and it has happened repeatedly in the history of the church. There have been very terribly corrupt popes. And my, I wrote a, I mean, I did a translation of, of St. Peter Damien's book of Gomorrah with a long introduction about the life of St. Peter Damien, his struggle against corruption. And that was a time of terrible corruption in the papacy, by the way. So this is a specialty of mine, <laughs> you know, talking about this. But I think it, it's helpful to review that, that the, the church has gotten through this in the past. The church has suffered terrible corruption in the papacy in the past. And, and a mark of a true Catholic is that we don't worship the clergy. We worship God. The clergy deserves respect, but we're not going to lose our faith over this. And the real challenge is for all of us to know our faith, I think, uh, to really learn it ourselves and to take responsibility for it and not depend on the private person of some prelate or cleric um, who may personally, he occupies its position of authority, but he may not personally be living in accordance with the gospel. He may be a, compu a confused person, a person who is teaching error, but but we need to know our faith and we need to persevere through this. So anyway, I'm really glad you you mentioned that. Yeah, we got about so 30 important. seconds left, um, Matthew. What um oh. what I mean, what do you want the uh, what, what do you want to happen with this book in 30 seconds? Well, I'm hoping that this book will really provoke, uh, help to contribute anyway to the process of reform in the church. That the public, uh, especially Catholics, will become aware of the depth of corruption that is in the Holy See that it runs apparently all the way to the top, and that they need to hold their prelates accountable, um, that they sh uh, that they and they need to insist on a restoration of our faith. We have, we're losing our faith because of the betrayal of our own clergy. Thanks. Well, this has been the David L. Gray Show, Voicing Truth and Reason on the Guadalupe Radio Network. Thank Matthew for coming in, exploring this book. And I'll be back next week, same time, same place. And I look forward to conversing with you again. In between time, you can visit me at davidlgray.info. But until then, until next time, remember that Jesus loves you and is there for you. And live your life like salvation matters. And may the abundance of our Lord's blessings and graces and favors fall upon you. Thank you.